like I felt like I had a very good relationship with booze or at least a very normal one in the crowds I hung out in. And then it just took this weird turn and suddenly I was drunk at gigs. You know, suddenly I was drunk alone. Holix.com, in partnership with Heart Support and the Global Recovery Initiatives Foundation, is proud to present High Notes, a podcast about addiction and recovery in the music business. I'm your host, James Shotwell. My guest this episode is the one and only Kat Hamilton. Kat is a singer-songwriter originally from the Bay Area who's lived all over the United States. Her latest release, Recovery Songs, is available now wherever you get music. While her solo career is fairly recent, Kat has been a fixture of the independent music scene for years. But not too long ago, her life had an abrupt shift. Thanks to the intervention of friends and family, Kat found herself in a facility that helped set her on the path to recovery. In today's episode, Kat tells us what was happening in her life in the weeks and months leading up to that change, as well as how she found the strength to channel her experiences into song. But before we get to any of that, the first thing I ask when I connect with Kat over the phone is just how long she's been sober. I just got my two year. Obviously in COVID, I didn't go get a chip, which sucks because that's like the part of the program that I stay the most connected to. It's like, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm gonna go get my chip. I consider myself to be three years given that my relapse I put in parentheses was very brief and very like not a lifetime movie. But you know, after my first year, I really wanted to know how I felt with a drink in my hand. Like I needed that. I know that's, they say in the rooms that that's like symptom of the illness that you think that you can drink normally, but it was more like, I just wanted to know, I was curious. I'm like, after all this time away, how do I feel? And so my first year, like almost on the anniversary, like a few days after I got my one year chip, I went and had a drink and I had a few drinks during like that month and then decided to recommit, moved my birth date and just got two years. Right off the bat, Kat is describing something that we haven't really talked about on the show before, but that is fairly common in the world of recovery. The further people get into their recovery, the more they may start to wonder if they can go back to what they used to do. What would happen if I suddenly decided to start drinking again? If I started to use whatever drug it is I used? Could I do it just one more time? Or would I slip back into my old ways? This kind of curiosity can be dangerous. Because if some people give in, they may never be able to get back on the path to recovery. With certain drugs, one time may be too many. Which is exactly why the people around Kat were urging her not to try drinking again but she had to find out for herself. A lot of things happened. So I am like triple diagnosis as a person. I didn't feel like walking in those rooms that I magically found my community. It wasn't that simple feeling that other friends of mine in the program had. I felt like I was still off in some way. And I like had the respect for the rooms. My life very much had a need for the rooms at the time purely just to have a place to be with other people who were on sobriety journeys, like to be able to talk about that with people who were experiencing it. But like I told myself, I'm like, I'm going to get a year and then see what I think. And as the year came to a close, I'm like, I need to know, you know, I need to know about my relationship with this. And like everyone in the program were like, don't do it. You know, there was a lot of negativity around my choice. My sponsor was like, you know, do it, but you're going to come crying to me. And it was like, kind of shame-based. And that's definitely not on the program that's on the individuals and on the dialogue. 
interpersonally. I want to make that super clear. Whatever system or program, you know, or church you have, there's the institution, there's the principles, and there's the people. For me, like people were telling me this isn't a great idea. I was like, I know what I need to do and I just need to do it. And I need you all to be there for me when I do. I need to be able to come back and be accepted. And so I made that choice and I did it with one of my best friends because I felt safe with her. And she's the person who got me to rehab in the first place. So it felt very serendipitous. She was very accepting of that. It wasn't like she was like, oh my God, like I get you to rehab and this is how you're paying me. She's like, obviously this is something you need to do if you're telling me this. And I did it, had a few drinks that month and kind of toyed with the idea. And then I realized that I was like, I'm happier without, I'm more clear headed without. And I don't want to bring this back in my life because even if I could drink normally, the stress of trying to drink normally or have a healthy relationship with it, I think would be my downfall. I wouldn't know that 100% unless I took that drink. And so I did. And then I got two years and I don't plan on taking a drink anytime soon. So I really think that was what was right for me. Kat brings up a very valid point. She is a musician. That is her job. And if she wants to succeed in the music industry, She's going to be around drugs and alcohol. It's almost inevitable that she will encounter them during her career. And she wanted to know for herself if that was going to be a problem. Absolutely. And I really, really loved actually getting to say goodbye in a way that was more intentional. Because when I went to rehab, I had also gone crazy. So there wasn't that intentionality. It wasn't me having control over my life and being like, I'm making this healthy choice. It was me sort of like, being thrust into a spiral and just sort of doing the best I could. If it isn't clear already, Kat's journey in recovery is unlike any other guest that we've had on the show, and I wanted her to walk us through it step by step. So before we go any further, we're going to go back to the beginning, to what was happening in her life before she first got sober. I mean, first of all, it is very important to me that I talk about the mental health stuff. They're all intertwined and also like... Like, I don't want there to be someone out there who, like, listens to my music out of the small listenership I have and doesn't feel like they know me, you know? So <laughs> I was struggling for a while. I went to rehab. I had actually never had a real hard time with alcohol in my life until that year leading up. I grew up in a family with alcoholism in the DNA. There was a lot of people going to jail, going to rehab. My grandpa was the pillar of his recovery community in Texas. And he had a job where he helped people get sober and transitioned them out of jail and programs into housing and jobs. So like it was around and I knew that I had some kind of predisposition for it. I really didn't struggle much because like I wouldn't really drink at gigs. I would never be drunk on stage. I was very like professional about my use. You know, I would get drunk at parties, but I would never like, you know, I didn't get drunk by myself or anything. There was just this, like, I felt like I had a very good relationship with booze or at least a very normal one in the crowds I hung out in. And then it just took this weird turn and suddenly I was drunk at gigs. You know, suddenly I was drunk alone. That had a lot to do with, you know, in the months leading up, I just kind of felt like I couldn't be myself. And I felt like I was under a lot of pressure in my own life and my professional life and my personal life to be a certain way. I wasn't connecting to people as who I was. And the more I felt alone and other, the more I felt like drinking was helping me not feel that. 
you know, I'm on many anti-anxiety medications and have had troubles with my mental health long before drinking was ever something that I struggled with. And, you know, you're just really not supposed to be an alcoholic on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. It's not good for your brain. You're not like a normal brain. Um, I mean, it's not good for anybody, but a very fragile mental state already. And so I, I was struggling with drinking. I would, it was like more likely that I would get drunk at a show and that's never a thing. My job in my old band, Manic Pixie, was very much being the person that people talk to at merch. Like I was signing things, I was interacting with people and I never ever wanted to be the person who was drunk doing that. I also did like a fair bit of physical exercise on stage and I would swing mic cables you know, like they do on Thursday and stuff. And you got to be careful if you're drunk, like you could hit someone. There was a lot. So I, I really didn't have any sort of problem keeping my professional life professional. And then once I did, that's sort of how it started sliding downhill. When I started coming apart, it's when like the boundaries I had set for myself and the way the example I'd set for myself of how I wanted to live was not what I was respecting. At this point, Kat understands that something is wrong because she isn't behaving the way she normally would. But for whatever reason, she's unable to make a change until a friend intervenes. I mean, there are certain details of that that I keep private, but I, the drinking and certain stressful circumstances and just a lot of all of the things coming ahead in my life caused me to go crazy or lose my mind, whatever you want to call it. That's sort of where my story starts actually is that disassociation from reality it snapped like a twig and i came to when i was in rehab day or two in so basically what happened was is like my best friend realized something was off and she knew that i had been drinking more it wasn't like something super hidden there was no bottles under my bed everyone in my life kind of knew that i was drinking more i don't think anyone realized how fragile my mental health was And then the drinking paired with that, it just went through a bad cycle. Um, I came to my best friend. I was visibly not myself. Something was really, really wrong. And I was really worried that I was going to take, okay, first of all, trigger warning, everyone. Trigger warning. Um, I was very worried I was going to take my own life. And so she called my parents, got me on a plane. That's kind of where our story begins. (laughs) And that's how I ended up in the rehab. Or the Relational Recovery Center. Yeah. It's very important that we we establish it was not a dry out. I don't want anyone to think it is because I don't want anyone to go looking at me being like, where do I go to dry out? Because I would be like, I don't know. Um, here's a list of resources. This place was a very special place. It was for people who are relational health trauma, childhood trauma, that also overlap with addiction. So that's where I ended up going because my best friend knows me better than anybody. And she knew where I needed to go. She's like, This is about something bigger than the booze. You need somewhere where they're going to help you with that. Now, when you hear Kat use a phrase like snapping back to reality, you may think that she doesn't recall what happened immediately before or right after getting on that plane. But that's not actually true. I do. Yeah. I mean, I remember stuff, but it was sort of like my body was on autopilot. So it's not like I blacked out. I remember things. I just didn't have any own control. Like I just had no control of myself. And so like, it was kind of like I was a baby. It's different for everybody. I talked to some people I met as my journey began. And like, as I went through my journey and still, I meet people who have had similar similar experiences where drugs or alcohol unearthed mental health issues and caused them to form 
to have a psychosis, to have a break, to have a nervous breakdown, these different terms that correspond with different kinds of symptoms. And like, for me, it was really like the pressure of life, the drinking, the stress of very extreme circumstances, it all like perfect stormed and something just snapped. And I just wasn't myself for a while. You know, you could physically tell that that was what was happening. If you're unfamiliar with disassociation, let me give you this explanation. Disassociation is a break in how your mind handles information. You may feel disconnected from your thoughts, feelings, memories, or even your surroundings. It can affect your sense of identity and your perception of time. Luckily, for most people, those symptoms will go away, but it can take a while. So when Kat talks about being in her body, but not feeling present with what's happening around her, that's an example of disassociation. It's a very real thing, and it can be very serious. It is. And I've talked to other people, I mean, they do, you know, who struggle controlling, struggle with like managing disassociation throughout their day, every day. That was never me. I had never had that experience before. It snapped. I had the experience and I was forever changed at 26. And so that's like a really different thing than somebody who struggled their whole life. You know, I dated someone with schizophrenia a few years back and she also struggled with disassociations and hearing voices. And that was a long, that's a long-term management thing. What happened to me was some kind of weird, you know, I, I don't even know how to say it. Something happened and I changed. There's some grief in that. If you know what your life was like before, you know, and then all of a sudden you're this completely like different being that there's a grief there, but it's also like not the same as someone who manages disassociations every day. Even though Kat was aware of what was happening around her, at least to some extent, she did not choose to enter the program as much as her friends and family sent her to seek help. So as she became aware of her surroundings, I wanted to know how she felt. Did she commit to the program right away or was there resistance? Well, I think I just got so lucky because I didn't get hospitalized. And if I had been hospitalized, my experience would have been different. Because for somebody like who went through what I did, you are just basically like a ghost, like navigate, like, and everyone's just sort of shuffling you around from place to place and you don't feel anything and you don't have any opinions or anything, which is really how it was for me for about like four days. That's how long it lasted. And granted, like, it's not a straight line. You know, I still struggle with stuff from those four days. But when I was in the center, like I wasn't in a hospital. It wasn't this jarring scary experience. And it was a very nurturing environment. It was a relational recovery facility on top of a beautiful prairie area in Petaluma, California with like hawks diving and horses. Uh, It was called Five Sisters. And there were three women, myself, our, I guess, leader, like our main leader, and then like a house mother, and then a, a groundskeeper and than someone who made the food, who also tended to the plants. And so it was a really small program, which thank God, I think it would have been way crazier had I been in a, like a more mainstream program in terms of my ability to adjust. Because it was sort of like, okay, now I'm here. There's these women. They're all being very nice to me. Okay, I guess we're going to therapy this morning. And it was a very easy transition back into life. Some of you may be hearing about relational recovery centers for the first time. So I asked Kat if they would walk us through the day-to-day. Um, you wake up, and basically, like, we usually had a, like, a hike or a yoga class. 
which like you think about it, you're like, oh, pinky out, like so high tone. But, you know, you you did need it because the rest of the day you spend in therapy. Um, <laughs> you got therapy for lunch, therapy after lunch until dinner. And that's how it was uh, pretty much. Therapy, exercises specialists came in, grief specialists, anger specialists. You know, there's a lot of shared trauma. I found that with these women who I'm still close with, we have a group text. I found in them the kindredness that I needed and that I didn't actually find in most of the recovery community. However, we got to this place, we all got there in a way that made sense for us, for each other as like support systems. I was the baby, but it was just therapy all day, every day. You never really know what's going to happen when a person enters therapy. Some find it very easy. They like to have conversations and they love learning about themselves, especially things that they themselves cannot see or understand. But others find it to be a struggle. They don't like to open up or they're resistant to opening up because they know they'll have to address something that they'd rather not address. And this is what it was like for Kat. I was really open to it at first, actually, because I was not well. I know that sounds weird, but because I wasn't like, I didn't have that control or agency that you would normally have. So I was like, whatever, like feed me therapy. Sure. This, sure. This, sure. And then I was, as I started to come more into myself and get a little bit of whatever me I could back, I started rebelling against it a little and fighting it a little because it was like more me and like questioning and having opinions and being like, am I in a cult? What's happening? You know, (laughs) then again, it swung back towards acceptance. So it was sort of like, you know, letting it all happen to me, questioning it, then accepting it as sort of like a wave. In every recovery journey, especially when you're just starting out, you learn these phrases and tips for existence that stick with you. Things that roll around in your brain whenever you encounter a difficult situation. They often help you stay on the right path. And I wanted to know for Kat, what was that phrase? What was the mantra that she added to her life to help her stay on the path to recovery? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many things you take from recovery programs that help you. You know, like I still say the serenity prayer. I think that's like a universal thing that people use for comfort. There is something in the relational program. We talked about how um, you make an agreement with yourself in life. And mine was like, I agree to be responsible for myself today and in doing so contribute to the safety of the group. Yeah, that was that's the big one. I agree to be responsible for myself today and in doing so contribute to the safety of the group, you know, and that wasn't an ism from the big book or anything that was from my own, the program that I was doing, but that was my first step in the recovery world was not the big book. It was this program. I think it resonated with me because I'm a bit of a codependent person. I struggle with codependence. I struggle with feelings of responsibility. I really am one of those people who feels responsible for everyone around me and wants to put everyone before myself. And the drinking actually kind of came from my feelings that I was failing that like perceived responsibility. If that makes any sense, like you assign yourself your own like fucked up responsibility based on childhood and then you fall short of it and you hate yourself. And so when someone in my program, the entire like structure of the program and the principles, it was like, I agree to be responsible for myself today and doing so I'm contribute to the safety of the group. It's like, oh, if I'm, if I can do me, if I can be, have me and have my back, then I'm actually keeping other people safe and being there for them as well, you know, by doing that. And it didn't really click for me until then that they're connected, that like I was working it the wrong way. It's not 
you show up for everybody and you're responsible for everybody and you save everybody. It's like you show up for yourself, you save yourself, you're responsible for, for yourself, and then everybody will be safer and happier for it. It's really hard because, um, you know, I was in a band and bands are a really great place for a codependent to be. They're really fun for a codependent. You've got like three people that you have to manage, respect and everyone and everything's a democracy and you know everyone's having a freak out and you're there for them and you're having all these really intense experiences on the road that like trauma bond you. And like, it's a codependence dream. It's actually way harder to be a solo artist as a codependent because all you want is everyone around you to be in trouble or have an opinion and for you to just like serve them. Kat and I are both codependent people. For us, there is no high better than being needed by somebody, especially if it's somebody that we care about. If the person that we love says they need us or they want us around for some reason, that is as good as doing any drug. The high cannot be matched. And the fact that Kat was able to channel that into something healthy and productive really speaks to her progress. It's crazy. So that was the good thing about me finding myself at this program was that it really addressed more of that. And that was like very much contributing to my drinking. Of course, the container of the Relational Recovery Center could not last forever. And this is what happened after. You know, so then I ended up in the rooms and then I also ended up in trauma therapy with the relational therapist from my program. So I did those in tandem. And then I was also seeking like Alan, like I went to different, different kinds of programs, Alan on, et cetera. And what is it called? Refuge recovery and some alternative programs. Like I worked with a coach for a while. It was sort of just like trying everything. They were like, here's all the things you could do. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm doing all the things. As the year, it was very much like a year of my life that was solely dedicated to that. I didn't work a job really, besides like a month that I worked at World Market for the holidays. I knew I was writing an album, but I didn't start planning that album, making it real until the end of that year because I really needed the time to just soak everything in and figure out where I was at. That period in Kat's life, which many people encounter, can be hard to navigate because recovery centers are kind of an all-in-one package. You eat, sleep, do therapy, and work on your recovery. But once you're back in the real world, it's on you. You have to find the right meetings. You have to find the right groups. You have to find the right therapists. It's a lot. And as Kat explains, It was not an easy process. I was struggling. My, my sponsor, like I had, I had a sponsor. I felt really other than her. I still felt other. I wasn't perfectly fitting into anything, even in a room full of others. And so I was trying everything and trying to find my way. And I have the up, you know, when I reflect back, I'm like, oh my God, like, thank God I had those places to go with people who weren't trying to like, these people knew me as who I was in that moment, not as who I was before what happened. And so I didn't feel like I needed to keep any artifice of who I was before or like do the things that I was before. It's why I didn't move back to Philadelphia because I was like, I can't be who I was before. There is no back. There is only where I'm at now. And the people that I found in those rooms could meet me where I was at now. You know, they talk about like sobriety goggles and how like drink you look at drinks differently. Like you can never go back to the way you look at them before. And like, that's, you know, my whole life, I kind of felt like that. And so the thing that worked best for me, I had a home group that I went to every week for queer people in my town. 
Uh, I was living with my parents for that year. So I was back in my town I grew up in. And that was good for me. That was the best fit was like a room of other queer people in various states of recovery, having a home group. You know, my therapy was really helpful because she was from my original relational program. And I fucking hate telling someone my whole life story again. I hate it. Why I hate changing therapists. It's the fucking worst. And then writing songs. I can't really talk about it without talking about recovery songs because out of all the things that healed me, writing that record probably healed me the most. When you hear what Kat just said, and you remember that her latest release is called Recovery Songs, you may think that it was all intentional, that she set out from the very beginning to write about her recovery, but you would be wrong. It was not intentional. Um, <laughs> I thought I would quit music, seriously considered it. I thought I was going to be a manic pixie for the rest of my adult life. I wasn't really interested in being a solo artist. I had cultivated a solo EP while I was in that band, but it was always supposed to be like a side thing because I was getting frustrated that I was like the person who didn't have a side thing, like that I was relying on everybody else to move forward creatively like so I wanted something a little thing for myself it was never supposed to be the thing I just didn't want to be not in a band anymore but I didn't want to start another one either you know it it's so much work to start a band and keep it going I didn't have another round in me I still don't and it's been three years I still don't have another round in me as far as starting a band I didn't want to be a musician anymore I wanted to sit on the couch with my dog, eat ice cream, watch TV, and like never be a part of the real world again, you know? And so like I'd been painting, I'd started painting as a creative outlet. My mom had me paint her office because she was like, you can't just sit here and like talk about how much you want to die all day. Like, she's like, you need an activity. Here's an activity and gave me paints and I painted her office. And so I've been doing that. Like, I wasn't even thinking about how am I going to make money? I was so far off from anything career related or like dating, like how am I going to date? Like nothing. It was basic AF. It was like, what am I going to eat this morning? What am I going to eat this afternoon? And what am I going to eat for dinner? But the song started coming out of me. And then I was like, ah, oh, fuck. Um, damn it. <laughs> because I wanted to quit, but then there's songs coming out of you, you know? No. And so the first song that came out of me was Medicine Line, um, which is the first song in the album. When you hear the song Kat is describing, which again opens her record, you know what's in store for the rest of the release. It sets the stage for a journey through recovery that includes all the emotions and struggles and hardships that so many people try to ignore. So I had to ask, when she finished it, how did she feel? And did she know that it was the only thing she was going to write about for this record? Well, that, if that's the first song that comes out of you when you're about to quit music, you're like, well, fuck. I guess this is the story I'm telling now. And it's ironic because I had all this other music that I had, I told you I had recorded an EP while I was in Manic Pixie. I was going to release that. Then make a solo record. Like, I was going to make a solo record. It was, it was going to be a side project. But I had other songs in mind because it wasn't the right fit. And ironically, none of those songs ended up on recovery songs. You sit there and you write Medicine Line and you're like, well, fuck, what do I do now? Because you write this song where like, I'm in treatment for my problems. Sign out my medication. I've done my meditation day. And you're like, this is the story I'm telling, obviously. Like the story won't let me not tell it. I set up a microphone and like 
you know, anyone who has ever demoed, like you set up like a little interface, connects to your laptop, open up GarageBand, set up a microphone, have my guitars. I was living in a tiny house in my parents' backyard, which is funny that a tiny house always has somebody in who's downtrodden. So for a year, it was me. I just had it set up and every morning I would grab my coffee and I would start. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't intentional me starting writing an album. But once I, re- once I wrote Medicine Line, I realized that it was going to come out of me one way or another. It's why it's the first song on the record. It had to be. And that song, it's, I mean, if you listen to it, it's like very literal. It's not that you can't interpret it as anything else than the story it is. It's about me waking up in a recovery center. And by waking up, I put that in parentheses and you can't see me doing that, but I am. Because waking up in terms of my own like stuff with the dissociation and the mental break and stuff, like me waking up and like being like, I'm in treatment for my problems. Like I'm here. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going through. And when I say like, I'm laughing at dinner with my sisters, my sisters are the people I shared that program with. I don't literally have a lot of sisters. I only have one. You know, I think there's, there's a line in medicine line where it's like, um, we're almost normal in our shatter. As I try to remember, this is how a mosaic starts. And that's kind of how I feel about the whole album. This is how you create something beautiful. You go through crap, bad things happen to you. It's not your fault. The only responsibility you have is how do you come out of it and create beauty? How do you turn all that crap into beauty? Is it music? Is it art? Start your own bakery. What do you do to make the bad things a part of like this beautiful mosaic of your life? It's one thing to write a song and share it with the internet. Even if people are your fans, you rarely know them on a personal level. But it's something else to share your songs with the people in your inner circle, especially when there's something so personal. So I wanted to know, who was the first person Kat shared these songs with, and how did they react? Um, one of my best friends produced the record. Her name's Allie Futerer, and she's an amazing bass player, but also a kick-ass producer. Um, and we have a podcast together as well, but we haven't posted episodes in a while because <laughs> of COVID. But so I sent her the stuff first and I was like, look, I've been writing something, something big. I sent her a folder full of like 30, 35 songs and was like, what do you think? Would you want to produce it? Because I knew she wanted to get into producing and wanted like the first big project to do that with. I might have shared it with my friend Will like slightly before that. He was like my, one of my main confidants during that time. And he ended up drumming on the record. Oh, like all the people involved in the record were people in my life in other ways for the most part, because it's just easier, you know, it's just easier to have them already know me. But yeah, Ali was like, this is awesome. And also she was like very connected to slow motion and was like, let's work on slow motion, which ended up being like the first song that we workshopped for the record like started demoing properly and then will was like yeah these songs are amazing duh and i'm like thanks will um and then he was like you have so many songs here like i think 30 fucking songs and he's like how like what kind of album are you gonna make and i'm like i'm not sure i'm like i could take all the best songs and put them on an album and go like mainstream with it where you 
you pick your bangers and that's the story. I could pick all the songs that tell the story the best and it'll be like an indie rock record. I could pick all the songs that sound of a specific genre. All the ones that sound country make a country record. All the ones that sound alternative rock make that record. And he was like, I think you should tell the story. So I think I talked to both of those people around the same time and showed them my work and I ended up choosing the songs that told the story. Before my time with Kat came to an end, I wanted to know the last time she had a craving to drink, and when was the last time she felt genuinely tempted to do so? So, the last time I craved, I think it was recently, honestly, like maybe a few weeks ago, because I was just really stressed out with my girlfriend and I's move. The last time I felt tempted, I think it was at my last place we lived, we had a bottle of whiskey, we had a bottle of bullet bourbon in the freezer, and we had it the whole time. There was one night where I had a really bad panic attack and there was bourbon in the freezer and I was like, oh, I could have a shot of bourbon and it would make it a lot better, you know, but that didn't happen. I don't get tempted very often. It's hard for me to see it through like rose colored glasses. I know what comes after drinks. When you name an album Recovery Songs, you invite a certain kind of audience. I have no doubt that Kat's fans will love her new music, but she's also inviting a new audience to discover her people who are going through recovery or people who are contemplating recovery and are looking for music to help them along their way. If you go to Spotify right now and you search recovery songs, nine times out of 10, you will see Kat's album. And that's a great thing, but it's also gonna make people wanna talk to her. People will soon come up to her or reach out to her on social media and ask her for advice. But of course, as someone in recovery, Kat knows that we never give advice. Instead, we offer suggestions things people might do if they're comfortable trying it. And this is what Kat will say to them. Well, I've actually had people already message me. And I definitely like, I got a lot of messages when I first put out medicine line too. Usually what I say to them is that like, these are some resources that I used. You know, here's a website, like here's a nice list. Give them like the number for the Trevor Project, which is like the main charity I work with. Then I'm also like, but there's also no straight line. Are you safe? Do you have support? And like, no, I'm not safe. No, I don't have support. I'm like, that's step one. Forget all the other ones. Like get somewhere safe where there's support. If like you don't have family, like if you don't have a good relationship with your family, that's cool. Like go to a friend's house. You need to be safe and supported before all else. Kat has clearly come a long way from where she was just three years ago. And before I let her go, I asked if there was any one moment or experience that stood out. If there was something in her life that she felt she would have never had or achieved or experienced if it weren't for her decision to get sober. Yeah, fuck. There's so many of them. I mean, this moment I ended up in L.A. after I told myself for years I would never live in L.A. Like when I moved into my first place. Ah, everything's happening that I told myself wouldn't happen. The moment that I obviously was in the studio for recovery songs at our first day in the studio and like looking around me and being like, I did this. You know, like, this is my money. This is my time. This is, And then, you know, like, my girlfriend and I, like, the moment we got together and, like, we were on the exact same page about life and I felt known and I felt safe and cared for, like, that feeling of, like, I get to have this relationship now. All this crap happened, but this person loves me and I love this person. And, like, I don't know if I would have gotten here because I wouldn't have been able to recognize it when it came. You know, like, I was caught up in other shit. I was dating other people so like when I woke up with her like our first morning after we were like together now I was like wow I found the thing 
I would have never found it because I wish would have been dating all the wrong people because I was so like messed up in my own stuff. And then what else? I mean, there's so many moments I've had in the past three years where I walked in and went, I wouldn't have had this. I literally keep a list in my bathroom of all the things I wouldn't have had because there are times where I become resentful with what happened to my brain and the ways that it lives on in my day to day. And I have to go back and look at the list. And I'm like, yeah, but if that hadn't happened, then... I wouldn't have learned how to play the bass because there was another person playing the bass. Um, I wouldn't have like gotten a music teaching career and like stopped having to work crappy catering jobs. I wouldn't have made this record. I wouldn't have met my girlfriend in the way I did. You know, the list is endless. What I love about Kat's story is that she had to figure out what works for her. Recovery is a common goal among a lot of people, but the journey to recovery and the decisions we have to make along the way are unique. And it's okay if what works for Kat doesn't work for you, because what works for you might not work for Kat. That's just the way it is. What matters is that we're all working towards the same goal of making better decisions that will lead to healthier lives in the future. If you or someone you know is suffering from addiction, please seek help. The High Notes team is here for you, and so are our partners at Heart Support and the Global Recovery Initiatives Foundation. There are even people in your local community. But if you need help, ask for it. There are people standing by, right now, 24-7, waiting to help you, to cheer you on, and to make you feel less alone. For High Notes, my name is James Shotwell. The show is brought to you by Holix.com and produced by Landon DeFever. Our programming consultant is Laura Haggard. The music for our show was made by the band You, Me, and Everyone We Know, and our art was created by the great Nick Farron. If you'd like to learn more about High Notes, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up High Notes Pod. We have more episodes coming soon, and we hope you'll stick around to hear them. But until next time, we have one small request. No matter what you do, please take care of yourself, because you deserve it.